We're in 1 Samuel chapter 16. But let's begin this morning by reviewing two verses, verses 10 and 11 in chapter 15, where it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Saul has turned away. He's turned back from the Lord, and an action loaded with the most serious consequences to fail to carry out God's instructions, God's words, is to become the enemy of the Lord. We're told this in Psalm 119, 139. I'm overwhelmed with indignation, for my enemies have disregarded your words. Continuing verse 11 there. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. The Lord's word to Samuel in verse 11 was clearly disturbing him. It caused him to be troubled. Some people think he was actually angry and to cry out to the Lord all night long. Then we finish chapter 15 with verse 35. And Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Saul was the choice of the people, and he failed. Samuel mourned for him. He loved Saul a great deal. He hated to see this man fail and to turn back from serving Yahweh. God has drawn a line in the sand, and he tells Samuel to move forward. So in chapter 16, verses 1 through 16, David, we see, will be anointed king. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Saul was the people's choice, but he would have been Samuel's first choice as well. God has rejected Saul, and Samuel, who's obedient to God, must carry out God's orders. So finishing verse 1, God tells Samuel, Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. Now we've been studying together, finding that the people were sinning against the Lord, demanding a king. We might assume that God has always been against this whole idea of a human king for Israel. But the Lord is telling Samuel something different. Look again at verse 1 where God says, I have provided myself a king among his sons from the sons of Jesse. In this short statement, Samuel, to Samuel, God is fulfilling a promise that he made over a thousand years before. This first verse in 1 Samuel chapter 16 is spoken to Samuel a thousand years before Christ in 1025 B.C. I've got a chart up here to help us kind of keep track of this. Where he says, fill your horn with oil and go. I'm sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I have provided myself a king among his sons. Well, let's go back even another thousand years before that. What did the Lord promise Abraham in Genesis chapter 17? 
I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And then what did God say about Sarah, Abraham's wife? I will bless Sarah, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people will be from her. <clears throat> and then a hundred years later, God said to Jacob, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. Well, if that's not enough, 550 years later, God anticipated this king when he gave instructions uh, through Moses in Deuteronomy 17. When you come to the land which the Lord your God has given you, <clears throat> and possess it and dwell in it, and when the people say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. Remember when they said that in chapter 8? You shall surely, God says, set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your brethren. You shall set a king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. In God's perfect foreknowledge, Deuteronomy 17 even prophesies or predicts the very words of the people in 1 Samuel chapter 8 where the people did demand a king to be like the other nations. In the back of your bulletin, if you're following along, we call this God's omniscience, his all-knowing. God was always looking toward this day. The rejection of Saul did not force the Lord to a new course of action. God's actions followed his omniscient plan. I believe it was God's intention all along to give Israel a king, but a godly king, a spiritual king, a king with character, a king of faith, all that Saul was not. God used Saul's disobedience as the human occasion uh, for implementing this higher plan. Israel just desired a king for all the wrong reasons. David was always God's choice to be anointed king over Israel. Matthew calls Jesus the son of David, the son of Abraham. All of this then leads us to the coming king of kings, ultimately fulfilled by David's heir, King Jesus. So here's an important lesson. As God's children, often our desires and God's desires are not so far apart. We want a good job. We're seeking mean, meaningful relationships. We're working to accumulate resources that are necessary. And I think God wants these same things for us. In fact, David tells us in Psalm 37, Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. You see, spiritual conflict comes when th three things, at least, get out of whack or out of line with God. First, conflict c comes in why we want these blessings. 
are they to enjoy and use for God's glory or just for my comfort and selfish plans? Next, or how do we go about getting our desires? Do we demand and try to manipulate God and others? And third, conflict comes when whether we're willing to wait on God to bring them about. Do we trust the Lord to make it happen? Our desires can run unchecked. They can spin out of control. Or they can be governed by faith. By forcing the issue, Israel's desire for a king led to an undesirable king. Be careful when you try to force God's hand. Uncontrollable desires lead to undesirable ends. Verse 2. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. Now, isn't that interesting? This king, who was Samuel's choice, whom Samuel cared deeply for and wept all night for, is also a king who has shown his colors. He will kill anyone who would stand in the way of his right to the throne. So finishing verse 2, God provides Samuel a cover. But the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I name to you. So Samuel can combine the anointing with his usual business of sacrificing. The Lord also keeps Samuel in the dark. He doesn't tell him which son. He doesn't give him any advance information. And this is true for us. God usually leads us one step at a time. Verse 4. So Samuel did what the Lord said, and he went to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming, and they said, "Uh, Do you come peaceably? They're thinking he's come to bring judgment. And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify or consecrate yourselves, and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Now, when this event is promoted as a day of sacrifice and worship, Saul totally loses interest. But Jesse was anxious to attend. Verse 6. So it was when they came that he, Samuel, looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before, before him. You see, Samuel's going to prove this old adage. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. He's choosing the son of Jesse who looks, like Saul did, the most kingly, the strong, the handsome one. Verse 7, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I've refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord looks at the heart. I think we can take this statement as an axiom of truth. It's always true. God always and only looks at the heart of a man 
or a woman? Well, let's ask the question. What is this heart that God is talking about? The heart in the Bible was thought to be a sort of control center from which all of our decisions are made. It's the place where you have your attitudes and your intentions. Proverbs 23, 7 says, For as he thinks in his heart, so is he. The heart is the source of your thoughts, your actions, and your words. The heart is the core of who I am as a person, the real me inside. Proverbs 4, 23 tells us, Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. Our heart includes not only our personality, but our choices, our feelings, decisions, intentions, motives. With your heart, you choose between good and bad, between God and self. Jesus said in Matthew 6, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. My heart focuses on and reveals what I truly desire. We teach about this in our children's Sunday school class. Our heart is that part of us that chooses, that chooses to obey, to love, to serve, to trust God. We, God created us in His image. We're created as a trinity with three elements or parts. You see, God is a trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Well, man is a trinity. Man also has three parts, our mind or intellect, our emotions, and our will. So with our mind, we think about God, and we learn how to love God and others. With our emotions, we feel and we respond to God's love. With our will, we choose to love and obey and trust God. You see, our will is at the heart of who we are. Isaiah let us know this in no uncertain terms when he quoted Lucifer. Isaiah 14 Isaiah says, for you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will <clears throat> exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farther side of the north. I will ascend <clears throat> above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Well, Satan's heart was evil. When he exerted his will, he rebelled and chose to disobey and to dishonor God. We might say that our heart <clears throat> includes our personality, feelings, motives, on and on and on. But to keep things simple, the bottom line is, with my heart, I choose between good and evil, between God and self. God's Spirit can prompt my heart to say, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. As Pastor Jared pointed out to us last week, it was the heart of David that chose to admit his sin and repent. 
And it was the evil heart of Saul that chose to find excuses and protect his pride. One thing God does when we believe in Jesus and we receive him as our Savior is to change our heart. David understood this in his, I call it his Psalm 51 prayer. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Pascal, the famous French mathematician, physicist, and, and inventor, was also a Catholic theologian, and he made this statement. There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God, the Creator, made known through Jesus. Now we read the verse 7. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You see, Saul had the appearance of a king, but he had the heart of a peasant. While David had the appearance of a peasant, but what? The heart of a king. When it comes to the people that God chooses and uses, you can't judge a book by its cover. When Samuel looked at Jesse's sons, he chose badly every time. He must have gotten gun shy at this point. So he has Jesse do the choosing. Verse 8, so Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. Well, you see, Samuel is finally listening for the Lord to speak. God's silence can only mean one thing. Finishing verse 10, Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. The Lord has not chosen these, any of these. So Samuel asks in verse 11, Are all the young men here? Well, then he said, Oh, well, there remains yet the youngest, and there he is, keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. So he sent and brought him, David, in. Now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking. Well, what did David look like? Uh, the New Living Translation. He was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes. Or he was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features, the NIV. I like how the message version states this whole exchange between Samuel and Jesse. Go back to verse 11. Then he asked Jesse, is this it? Are there no more sons? Uh, well, yes, there's the runt. But he's out tending the sheep where he belongs, I guess. Samuel ordered Jesse, go get him. We're not moving from this spot until he's here. So Jesse sent for him. He was brought in. The very picture of health, bright-eyed, good-looking. So David is brought in, and the Lord immediately responds, finishing verse 12. The Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. 
Now, anointing with oil symbolized anointing with the Holy Spirit. This is really important for us to understand this morning because as we see David anointed with the Spirit, what are we going to see happen to Saul? Well, we'll get there. Isaiah 61 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. So God's Spirit enters the life of David right here in verses 12 and 13. The tenth thing in our, in our bulletin. David is known as a man after God's own heart <clears throat> because he is sensitive to the leading of the Spirit. Verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. Now there's discussion among Old Testament scholars about the presence and working of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Most agree that in the Old Testament the Spirit came and went. That the normal experience of the Spirit in the Old Testament was more external and temporary. That's compared to the permanent indwelling of the Spirit beginning on the day of Pentecost when the church was born in Acts chapter 2. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. But this can be a simple and incomplete view of the Holy Spirit's work. You see, the work of the Holy Spirit has an indispensable regenerating work in achieving spiritual growth, and renewal even in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6 says, The Lord your God will change your heart and the hearts of all your descendants so that you will love him with all your heart and your soul, and so you may live. We also have the witness of, of David that we referred to earlier. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me, do not cast away, me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous Spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. You see, David <clears throat> had a growing belief that the divine presence of the Holy Spirit was his only hope of salvation and redemption. In, in John's Gospel, chapter, th chapter 3, Jesus even rebuked a Bible scholar, Nicodemus, remember him? For being ignorant of the saving, regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. I think when we refer to Old Testament prophets and kings like David, it's safe to say that the Holy Spirit came upon even indwelled David for long periods of time. Even when the Spirit worked in and, through in and through David, he did so in mighty and marvelous ways. We're going to see this in the next chapter. Next week, as David faces Goliath with his sling, five smooth stones. You know why five? He had four brothers. And the Spirit of his God his sling, his stones, and the Spirit of God. 
And again, we're going to see as David in chapters 19 through 31, as he fled from Saul, but at least two times he had the courage to refuse to kill Saul when Saul was right there. He could have done it. But God uh, had all, but Saul was also still God's anointed. David knew then what many times we forget today about our national leaders. David's enemy wasn't King Saul. His enemy was the spiritual forces of Satan active in Saul. It was a spiritual battle that David trusted the Lord to take care of, to take care of in the Lord's time and in the Lord's way. Our battle today is also a spiritual battle. Now, the Holy Spirit is also seen in David throughout the book of the Psalms. He didn't write them all, but he wrote many of them. David is named in Samuel chapter 23, the anointed of of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. God's Holy Spirit soothes our minds and literally shouts to our hearts throughout the book of Psalms, as we read David's Holy Spirit-inspired words, David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, he was anointed with the Spirit. Finishing verse 13, So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Samuel departs for home. Now, although Samuel makes additional appearances later on, it seems he no longer plays an active role in the books that are named after him. The anointing of David was the capstone, the finishing touch of of Samuel's career. So we come to next, uh, verse 14 through 23. A distressing spirit troubles Saul. But the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. Now, he's still recognized by the people as their king for another 15 years. But Saul was ousted by the Lord right there and then. The Holy Spirit has left Saul. He's departed. The vacuum in Saul's empty soul beckons for a replacement, and God approves. God's Holy Spirit, number 11 in our bulletin, has been God's hedge of protection for Saul. God has also given us protective barriers. He's he's given these barriers to us to protect us from within and from without. You see, God's Word, His commandments are a protective hedge that can safeguard our hearts from within. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 29, Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and always keep all my commandments. And here's the protection, that it might be well with them and with their children forever. And again, in Psalm 119.11, Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. The Holy Spirit is another protective hedge that we have. 
His indwelling presence surrounds us and keeps our spiritual enemies at bay. John tells us in his uh, epistle, 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, You are of God, little children. You have overcome them because He who is in you is what? Greater than He who is in the world. Saul's distressing spirit is most likely demonic. Satan and his demons had always wanted to attack Saul. God was now simply giving them permission to do so. Saul is troubled. His servants are worried. Verse 15. And the servants said to him, Surely a distressing spirit from God is troubling you. Well, I like what the Jewish historian Josephus, first century of um, B.C., he said this, Saul became weak and foolish, lost all courage and greatness of mind. The understatement of the first century. Verse 16, Saul's servants ask, Let our master now command your servants who are among you, to seek out a man who is a skillful player on the harp. And it shall be that he will play it with his hand when the distressing or literally evil spirit from God is upon you, and you shall be well. Well, they're looking for relief. Respite from this funk that encircles and lays siege to their king. But they're only looking for human relief. A soothing song. Verse 17. So Saul said to his servants, provide me or go look for now a man who can play well and bring him to me. Then one of the servants answered and said, look, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who is skillful in playing, a mighty man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech. He's trying to prove that he's good enough to do it. And a handsome man and the Lord is with him. Now, Unwittingly, Saul's servant has just introduced Saul to Israel's next king. I like that. Therefore, Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with the sheep. Now, both times we hear about David, he's been referred to in this chapter as being with the sheep. David is seen in the role of a shepherd. Don't look now, Saul, but a shepherd is the true role of a good king. And you've just invited him into your life and into your palace. Verse 20. And Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by his son David to Saul. Also David came to Saul and stood before him, and he loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. I think Saul loved David in proportion to the relief David's music gave him. He didn't love him for who he was, but for what he could do for Saul. Then Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Please let David stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. And so it was, whenever the Spirit from God was upon Saul, that David would take a harp and play it with his hand. Then Saul would become refreshed and well, and the distressing spirit would depart from him. Whenever the spirit came on Saul, 
David would do much more than just take up his harp and play his songs. These were songs of praise and worship to God. Some of his music was songs or psalms that you and I read today in the Old Testament. Songs were sung, relief would come, Saul would feel better, and the Spirit would leave. One author writes this, Satan, why did he leave? Satan is allergic to praise. So where there is massive, triumphant praise, Satan is paralyzed, bound, and banished. To Satan, praise is like the sound of fingernails clawing a chalkboard. When we worship God, it grates at him. It causes him to cover up his pointed ears and flee. Now, we don't usually think of worship and spiritual warfare as going together, but they do. This was true here with David and later with his great-grandson, King Jehoshaphat. The prophet made a, a promise. He said, King Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid or dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours but God's. This is true for us today. The battle is God's because our enemy is not man. But just as the Apostle Paul told the Ephesians, our battle is against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. King Jehoshaphat, he listened to the prophet. But watch how God wins the battle then and today. He gathered and positioned his warriors for battle. Then he called the worship team. Hey, Tyler, Darren, and the rest of y'all, Get your instruments and get out in front of the army. You're the tip of the sword. We read in 2 Chronicles 20, Jehoshaphat appointed those who should sing to the Lord and who should praise the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army, out in front, and saying, Praise the Lord, for His mercy endures forever. Everybody say that. Praise the Lord, for His mercy endures forever. And when they began to sing, and when, and to praise, the Lord's work is activated by our faith. That's when the Lord set ambushes against the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, and they were defeated. Now, we need to be more like these singers. We need to worship our Father and sing praises to the Lord as we are facing the enemy, as we're beginning to struggle, even before the victory's been won. Now, back to chapter 16. It ends with a gifted young man, Israel's future king, coming to serve a rejected and dejected ruler who's totally unaware of the implications of his welcoming David into the palace. David, not just this handsome yokel out from the country with his harp, he's Jesse's son, the anointed king. 
And with little pomp and pageantry, David, God's anointed with his songs of praise, began to drive Satan and his evil spirits out of the palace. And that's the last lesson for us here today. Our intentional worship, praise, and trust in the work of God's Spirit will win the spiritual battle even in these dark days we live in today. A friend of mine says, I get up in the morning and I intentionally follow what Jesus said, the two greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your strength, your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. He says, I intentionally try to love God and reach out to love others. Let's pray. Lord, it can be confusing. We look around and we see Satan's work in this world today. And we forget that our role is to trust you, to worship you, to sing your praises, to love you and love others around us. God, make that our prayer today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.